Good morning. Well, here we are in uh, Hebrews, Lesson 13, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 8, our primary text. And um, I'm going to throw you a curve this morning, so just uh, hold on. This is not the only message I'll be doing on this text, but I may not fulfill all of your expectations uh, this morning, and you will just have to see how that goes. When I was in college many years ago, uh, we, we used to call the, the cook Mother Miller, and, and we talked about mystery meat and whatever, and, and you know how all that college talk goes. It was the day that I got a chunk of salt about that big in my uh, scrambled eggs that I decided it was better to eat off campus than on. But I didn't really know a lot about budgeting, and so I and my other two roommates decided that we could cook our own food. Uh, it was macaroni and cheese, a tomato soup, and for meat, we thought it would be a chuck steak because it was cheap. It was cheap, but nobody told us the fundamentals of meat. And uh, so you can imagine trying to cook a chuck steak something like you would a cube steak, and, and uh, it gave us something to go on for the entire week. And, and I was thinking about that in relationship to, uh, to this text because the, the writer here, while he talks about solid food, we often from other texts talk about meat versus milk. And so I was thinking Hebrews chapter 6 verses 4 through 8 is not milk. In fact, it's not even uh, solid food. It's meat, and it's not just meat, it's chuck steak. <laughs> and, and the way in which you make chuck steak good is you cook it a long time. Either that or you chew it a long time. Is that not right? <laughs> chuck steak is good. It, it's good. Chuck roasts are good, but you better cook them slow. So if you are looking for a drive through have-it-your-way Big Mac, don't plan on it this morning, this is a slow cooker, and it's going to take us a little while to work our way through the text, and I believe it's, it's meaning for us. It's important for us to understand that the Scriptures have hard texts and, and, and know they're hard. Um, for example, when you look at, at what Peter says, I, I have to giggle when I read this from Peter because he's talking about Paul and his writings in Second Peter, remember, and he says, and, and some things are difficult to understand. And I'm thinking, look, Peter, you're the guy that wrote First Peter chapter 3 and Jesus going down into the, into some people would say into hell and whatever. Talk about tough text, man. Don't give me that. But he says, some people take those difficult texts and they distort them to either the destruction of others or the destruction of themselves. So there are tough texts, and those tough texts present us with challenges that we must meet. We must come to them as difficult texts, and we must deal with them carefully because there is always the possibility of making something of them that we should not. So let me tell you what I'm going to do in this message. What I plan to do is, first of all, borrow, if I can, from John Piper, uh, part of a message that he gave, not on Hebrews chapter uh, 6, but on another text, and it was called, Why God Gives Us uh, Hard Texts. And I think I've got a reference in there somewhere where you can look at that. Why God Inspired Hard Texts. And then uh, I want to talk about 
just an overview of the four major views, the four major evangelical views of, uh, of this text that we're facing today, uh, but without pronouncing a great deal of judgment upon any of them. And then I want to uh, draw some preliminary conclusions from that, some observations, and, and then uh, I'm going to let you, pardon me, stew for the next week. I said chuck steak works best when you cook it slow. And, and it, it's really struck me, as I've agonized about this text, it struck me more and more what my job is. And, and I believe that sometimes uh, my sense of what my job is when I look at the, at the preaching and the, and the church world around me, that somehow my job is to bring you to this text and tell you it's not as difficult as you think it is and to make it good and easy for you and, and give you all the answers so that you walk away and you haven't chewed. Well, that's not what the writer's saying. He's saying this text is for you to chew. Not for me to chew like some mother bird and give it to you digested, half digested, so that you can take it home without any work. So that's kind of going to be my approach this morning. Well, let's talk about the hard texts. Why does God inspire hard texts? And you'll notice that these, this comes from a message by John Piper, and you're welcome to go out there on the web and, and uh, take a look at it if you like. And I've chosen to stay with his words. You'll notice that I've added points E and F, which are my points, and I've separated them with the reference notes so that you'll uh, be able to distinguish what he's saying there from, from my own comments. It, one, he says, is desperation. And, and, and I gotta tell you, now, I can understand him picking that word as a preacher, because, you know, he knows that he's getting up at a certain time and he's gonna preach that text. It's one thing for you to look at a text and say, okay, well, I don't really understand that. Well, I'll put that off mentally. I'm gonna keep that on the back burner. Preachers have to get up and say something about it. And there reaches a point for preachers where it is desperation. You're saying, Lord, the week's getting late. i got to make up my mind. What am I going to tell about, about this text? So desperation is where we recognize our inability. We know this is a tough text, and we know it is over our heads, and we must flee to him. And so he talks about recognizing our inability and relying upon the Spirit of God to make clear to us the things that the natural man is simply not going to understand unaided and on his own. His second point is supplication. And that is when you get to that point of desperation, you get on your knees and you say, Help, Lord! It's sort of like Peter down there when he's sinking into the, into the sea and you cry out for help and you ask God to give you insight. And that's consistent with what we find in the Scriptures. Um, over and over again. Uh, Psalm 119, uh, it says, Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from thy law. So we see in the scriptures men praying that God will illumine them and make texts uh, clear to them in terms of its meaning and its application. Then he talks about uh, cogitation. Now, he's obviously working an alliteration thing here a bit. But what he's saying is you got to think about it. You've got to go through some mental exercise. And he, he takes that text from 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 7 where Paul says to Timothy, Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. By the way, think about the Lord Jesus. Over and over and over, not just in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, but he says, Think, 
Think, think. And, and oftentimes our Lord Jesus will raise a question to which he does not give the answer. And so people don't walk away saying, well, that was easy, three points, a poem, and we all go home. You know, they walk away saying, what in the world does that mean? He's trying to get you to think about what God's Word says, and, and that's a very important element for us, all of us. And then education, and by that he's talking about God using people who are gifted, gifted men, uh, to, to help us understand and to convey the meaning of scriptures and difficult text to, uh, to uh, others. And that, of course, is, is important as well. I'd like to add a couple of points. Uh, mine, my first one, point E, is humility. I think that God throws difficult texts just to show us that we're not as smart as we think we are. Whether we went to seminary or what our grades were in seminary, you get to a really hard text and you just say, man, this thing is just over my head. But isn't that what the Scripture says? Humility really is the beginning of wisdom. God brings us to the point of recognizing our, our, our inabilities so that we realize we're dealing with something much greater than us. And that gives us a certain mindset as we approach the Scriptures. It puts us under Scripture rather than over it, and I think that's a very, very important thing. And then I call it hard work or sweat. One of the reasons he puts it there is because God didn't put his gems, uh, lay them around on the top of the ground so we just go around gathering up like wild strawberries. It it says in Proverbs chapter 2 that we ought to search for it like silver. One of the ways in which we evidence our seriousness about the Word of God is is how hard we're willing to work in order to get its message and understand what God is saying to us. Okay, four major interpretations of our text. I need to have a say a few things as a kind of a uh, of a preface here. One, I'm breaking my own rules. You know, I hate books that have the four views of this and the four views of that. It just drives me nuts. And so here I am now having to humble myself and say, okay, I'm going to do this this time, whether I like it or not. I'm going to talk about four views, hopefully for good reason. You have to ask yourself then, and I have to ask myself, what is my job today with respect to you? What is my responsibility to you? What is my responsibility to the Word of God? Am I just to make it easy so you don't feel uncomfortable when you leave? Is that what, is that what I'm here to do? So you say, well, I thought that was a tough text. It's really easy. Well, it is a tough text, and I hope you don't go away feeling too good without thinking about it first. And, and so I have to be really in sync with the author's purpose. And the author is saying, you guys have been on the bottle too long. And it's time to start moving to the solid foods. You need something to make you chew. Well, if his purpose is to make his readers deal with meat, then I have to deal with this text as though it is meat. And not... And not uh, you know, mush it up until it's kind of like that stuff you buy for your babies where you, you know, you pulverized it and it's just, it's like pudding. You, it, it, I need to give it to you in the form that the author intends for you to have in order for you to struggle with the text as well as for me. He's not just doing this for preachers to keep them up late at night. He's doing this for all of us so that we can struggle with the text and find out what the truth is.
I ask it as a question, but I guess it's really a statement. Uh, is the author purposely vague or elusive? I think he is. I, I, I was listening to, to one of my uh, favorite preachers uh, in audio, MP3, and, and he said of these descriptions that are given, he said it's interesting that these descriptions are not such that you would find them anywhere else and you can immediately say, oh, this is what it means. They've tasted, you know, and they've done this and they've done that. And, and they're, almost, uh, they're almost purposefully elusive. Why is that? Is the author a bad communicator and he just wasn't clear? Or is there a reason why that it's not quite as easily set forth? Maybe it's because he's putting the truth a foot or two below that we have to, to dig for. Uh, I think that he is purposely uh, vague or elusive, and that means I have to understand that in order to understand what the intent of this text is and how it ought to be proclaimed. Another thing that I've noticed is the faith and the integrity of those who hold these opposing views. When I was listening to one of my, one of my favorite preachers, he, he made a point of saying, these are, as a rule, these are evangelical views. Now, you may be a Calvinist and you see the Arminian view and you say to yourself, man, how do they do that? But, but be, understand, there are a lot of fine Christians who are not Calvinists. Now, maybe they're unenlightened, maybe they need more meat, whatever it is, but there are a lot of fine believers who will hold to this view, and and we need to be very careful that we respect them, that we respect their faith, and even in some cases that we respect their scholarship. These people aren't always uh, in, in the double digits on their IQs when they come to the conclusions that they do. So we need to respect the other, the other people who hold their views. And I, I see, at least in, in recent terms, a, a greater level of humility when, in terms of dealing with those. I have to tell you, I've talked to a number of people, and, and, uh, and, and I've seen in some people who I've heard it taught very dogmatically, and, and I've heard later versions of that same teaching, and it doesn't have quite the edge to it as though how could people be so stupid as to believe this other view? There's just a a little bit more caution, a little more humility, a little more respect. And and so I think we need to have that. And I'm going to tell you, I'm not going to tell you my view today, but I am going to tell you this. Whatever my view is, it might change. It might change. Uh, and, And so don't hang your hat on that, and, and I think that says to me, I better be careful how I communicate this as though it is not something that, that you know, is one of those fundamentals of the faith that everything falls if the view shifts a little bit one way or the other. All right. Uh, and I, I'm getting this, by the way, from a book uh, of these four views uh, from a book by uh, Schreiner and Canaday that is, uh, is, I think, an excellent book called The Race Set Before Us. And you will notice the graphics. I might as well tell you this now. You'll notice the graphics. They are obviously better than me. You'll take one look and say, he couldn't have done that. I didn't. A, I borrowed the, the concept right out of their book. And, and in some instances, I don't, I'm not e- exactly in line with the, what, the portrayal. But I, I think it's a good way of representing it. It's my son-in-law, Jeff, who did these graphics. So you're right. I'm still lousy at art, uh, and it just looks like I'm better, and I can't be hypocritical about that. So here we go. 
The, uh, the first view is what we might call the Arminian and, and uh, uh, Canaday and Schreiner call it the uh, loss of salvation view. You see that on the screen? It should be coming up uh, shortly, I think, I hope. And, uh, uh, and, and in that view, uh, basically the, the, uh, the belief is that a Christian may apostatize and lose their salvation. A Christian may fall away and lose their salvation, okay? So here are the main elements of that. Those who are being warned in the text are true believers. Uh, Secondly, uh, future salvation is not guaranteed. So there's an iffiness about the, the end result. One of the things that Schreiner and Kennedy do is they talk about the difference between what is presently yours and what is still future to be gained uh, and and uh, the future for this view is not altogether a lead pipe cinch. And the warning concerns real hell. And when you look, if, if you want to try to find some positive aspects, when you read the description of the fate, it sounds like hell, doesn't it? I mean, if you were to just take a reading of the text without considering any other text, of Scripture or any other theology in Scripture, you might say, well, it, it certainly could read that way. Uh, that it could, it could sound like it was a believer. It could sound like they lose their salvation and suffer eternal hell. The positive uh, aspects of this, it seems to be a description of those who are warned. It, it seems to take that at face value. Now, again, that may be good or it may be bad. And it seems to take the warnings seriously at face value, not to discount the warnings, but but to take them as something very, very serious uh, that one ought to pay heed to. The negative problem is it 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 really ignores the doctrine of eternal security, and and you know what do you say? The doctrine of eternal security just somehow goes away with that interpretation of of this view. And with it comes a pack of doubts because now if if your ultimate destiny is not secure, then then the question is, am I going to make it? And and the writer of the Hebrews seems to be undergirding one's confidence in their confession, not, uh, you know, undercutting it in some way that they have their doubts. Did I say I was going to be neutral? Well, it's really hard to be neutral about this one. I I, I have to admit, you you guys guys will figure out. I'm not going to go here, but it's one of the views, and at least there are people that that are godly people who hold to it. By the way, one of the other issues with this is that it goes too far. It not only says a Christian can lose their salvation, it says they can't come back. So, you know, it won't, it's not going to be one of those where you have the sort of Armenian position that you got to get re-saved every week, or in my case, every moment. Uh, every time you do something bad, uh, you, you're out. When you're out, you're out. And, and so there's no sense talking about, you know, repentance that would bring you back, at least as I perceive it. So you see the graphic up there? The, the, uh, the warnings and the admonitions raise doubts about receiving the prize, and the prize is eternal life. Second view <clears throat> is called the loss of rewards view uh, and by Schreiner and Kennedy. And I w- I, I've modified this a little bit because I'm not really satisfied with their representation of the view 
And so I put it in italics and underscored the part that I think we need to add to it uh, because it focuses primarily, almost exclusively on rewards and not on discipline. But the summary would be this. A Christian may apostatize and thus lose their future rewards as well as encounter severe earthly discipline. That's the part that Schreiner and Kennedy do not include. And, and, and it seems to me you, you have to include that element. The warning of judgment is a real warning of earthly, uh, shall we say, physical judgment that comes about now as well as uh, the element of the loss of, of rewards with regard to the future. So it, it seems like it has to have both of those elements to it. The main elements, those who are warned are true believers Future salvation is assured, not, re- not put out somehow on the auction block where you're not quite sure whether you're going to make it or not. And the warnings, therefore, conclude eternal rewards and earthly discipline. The positive aspects. It applies to Christians. When you look at the book of Hebrews, it's written to believers. And so if, if you've all of a sudden have changed your focus to unbelievers, then you're saying, well, where is this going? This speaks, this view sees the text as speaking to believers. It takes the warnings seriously. But it, is sti- it stimulates assurance and confidence. It doesn't undermine one's confidence in terms of, you know, am I going to make it or not? Uh, which is what the author, of course, is trying to undergird for us. Negatively, here's, here's the, the question, I guess. Is, is the warning section taken seriously enough? In other words, I think the question would be asked by some. Is severe earthly discipline, uh, does, does that come up to the full measure of the sobriety and the severity of the warning that we find in our text? Some people, would that, that would be where the question would, would lie with them. So if you look at the graphic on that, it says warnings and admonitions raise doubts about receiving the prize, but there is no question about receiving salvations, uh, reaching salvation ultimately. Okay, and then you see uh, what we'd call the, the Calvinistic or the test of genuineness view. Uh, as as uh, Schreiner and Kennedy uh, presented. And, and it goes like this. If an apparent Christian apostatizes, we know that he was never saved. It's just quite that simple. If somebody falls away from the faith, the only way that could happen is if they were an unbeliever in the first place. Uh, now, There's some difficulties, but we'll look at those in just a moment. The main elements are those described are not true believers. So those that you see described as having tasted of the Holy Spirit and and, and of the powers of the age to come and so on, that's not talking about believers in accordance with with this view. Uh, Only unbelievers can apostatize, and uh, uh, eternal judgment is only for them. So in that sense, it bypasses uh, believers Uh, in in some ways. Positive claims. It's consistent with eternal security. I think I would have to say it is driven by eternal security. Uh, 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 That, I mean, I'm not willing to forsake the doctrine of eternal security, but I'm just saying that this seems to be the way to deal with a text that holds to eternal security. 
uh, and, and is able to work it out. By the way, I should say to you, this is really the major uh, view of people you respect, John Piper, uh, uh, Lewis Johnson, uh, and, and most of the commentaries I've read, this, this would be the, the, the view that they would hold because they come from a more reformed uh, point of view. Takes the warning seriously, it's consistent with eternal security, but the issue is, uh, can those described really be unsaved? When, when you look at the description uh, in, in verses uh, uh, 4 and 5, can you really look at that and say, well, no, those, those people were never really saved? That's, that's a question. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw in something that my wife said to me that just you might make in the practical realm. We know a particular individual far away in the Middle East who, for whom we have been praying, who I will not name because it might go a little too broadly. But my wife said to me, is he an example? Is he an example of what Hebrews 6 is talking about? It is interesting to think about a text in terms of real life. And, and so I, I throw that out for your consideration. But the question is, can those verses in verses 4 and 5, can those be taken as as unbelievers with all that is said about them. And if it's emphasis on unbelievers as opposed to believers, then what point is there, what value is that for the believer to be looking at this warning which is addressed toward uh, unbelievers? And more than that, and you'll see this in the graphics, so you might as well turn to it. I'm not sure that, that Schreiner and Kennedy are altogether fair, but notice in this imagery they have the runner running back rather than running forward. And what they're saying is that all along, when, when if you're thinking that, that it's possible for someone to fall away, if they fall away, they're an unbeliever and they can never be saved again, then there is a way in which you keep looking back and saying, am I really saved? A- am I really on the inside? Did I, did I do it right? Did I go through the right motions? Did I say the right words? And so in a sense, the, what he's saying is you're always looking back because you're not quite sure of the past. And, and, and that's, of course, what determines what the future is. So it has its, in my opinion, it has its problems. Fourth is what's called the hypothetical view. I, this is one of the views I used to hold. By the way, I heard Dr. Johnson say, and if he could say it, I know I feel a lot better. He said this in his, in his uh, older age. He said, if I had a dollar for every biblical text I ever misinterpreted, I would be a very rich old man. <laughs> I can identify with that. So, you know, I, some of these views we may look at and turn our nose up to, but I, I have to say, oh, yeah, I've been there. I held that view once, <laughs> thought it. Um, Okay, the hypothetical view. The, the, the beauty of the hypothetical view is it, it, it sort of takes away all of the rub because it's not something that's really going to happen. And here's, here's the way you take it. The author is saying we need to turn away from, uh, we need to move beyond milk and move on to meat. We need to go on to those things that are, are the things of maturity. And, and the argument would flow something like this then. If somebody could lose their salvation and then needed to be resaved again, then you'd have to keep preaching the gospel. I mean, just think about it. If, if we were Arminians and we believed every time you sinned and didn't fess up right, you lost your salvation, then we'd give an altar call every week, and every week, every one of you ought to be up here. Really, really, should you not? 
uh, in fact, I wouldn't wait all the week. The Lord may come in the middle of the week and catch you off guard. Man, you're in trouble. So, so there's, uh, you know, there's that issue. But if it's a hypothetical matter, uh, and, and what it's saying is, if you could lose your salvation, you could never get it back then the point would be, well, then why harp on salvation all the time to people who have already professed faith? They're either in or they're out. If they're out, they can't come back in anyway, so you might as well move on. I mean, that's the value. It's, it doesn't sound so good now. It used to sound great. <laughs> I don't know what happened, but it went away for me. And, and so the problem is it's hypothetical. It's hypothetical. And frankly, the, the writers don't do that. You, you just don't argue and say, if this were true... Thus and thus and thus and thus, and but it isn't true. <laughs> then why even bother? It, it just it just doesn't seem to carry weight. I guess I've told you how I feel about that too. Anyway, uh, you can see the the graphic warnings and admonition, admonitions only caution what would happen if one could fall or could fail to endure to the end, which they can't. And so there you have it. I'm going to throw in one without a graphic, can I? One more I call it the historically unique view. Uh, J. Sidlow Baxter uh, and Wiest, among others, uh, would hold this view, and it goes something like this. This period of time was an absolutely unique period in history. The, uh, th- there were people uh, in, in that first generation of Jews who, who heard the preaching of our Lord Jesus, who heard the preaching of the apostles, and they had to make a decision as to whether to remain within Judaism or whether to, to, to bail out. When you look at, at instances like the disciples of, excuse me, of John the Baptist in, in Acts uh, chapter 19, they came in. But this is a, in their view, it's a unique situation that can never be reproduced again in history. And so it's all academic. It, it, it was only for them. And friends, I, you could see this same kind of argument being played out over and over. Well, Corinth, Corinth was a unique situation. Now, what I would say is that doesn't seem to do justice to the text itself because what is the author of Hebrews doing? He goes back to Psalm 95. Psalm 95 goes back to the, back to the first generation of Israelites who didn't enter into rest. Folks, we're not living in the desert. We don't wonder whether we're going to have water tomorrow or manna tomorrow. We're not living in those days, and yet the writer to the Hebrews applies it to the people of his day, and the writer of, of Psalm 95 applies it to the people of his day, and the writer of the Hebrews says, me too. So I'm saying, when, when you come to 1 Corinthians 10, and you see all that story about Israel in the wilderness, and then it says, there is no temptation except that which is common to man. And he's saying, the lessons that were to be learned from their experience are lessons for you. You're no different than they are. Circumstances may differ a little, but the reality is we're the same, and God's the same. So that historically unique view, it has the plus, I think, of saying we need to understand the context in which Hebrews is, the writer to the Hebrews is writing to his recipients. Yes, but what you don't say is because it's not identical to ours, it doesn't apply to us. Here come my reflections on milk and meat. By the way, I want to make a comment here, thanks to, to Tom Wright. It, it, is, it sounded, I, I, I probably came across last week as sounding like milk is Old Testament and, and meat is New Testament. If that came across, well, scratch that out of, your, out of your memory banks, and you'll see this week that's not really where I'm, where I'm coming from. 
It seems to me as I look at this text, and really I'm trying now, before I look at the particulars of the text, that's going to come next week, before I look at the particulars, I want to look at the broad, the broad ramifications of this passage and not let those pass us by unnoticed. It seems to me that the author is purposely vague and elusive at certain points in this text. And I think with purpose, I could tell you a couple of reasons, I'll, I'll wait for a minute. Uh, B, God knew how these warnings would impact Christians before he revealed them. Our present situation, that is how evangelicalism deals with Hebrews chapter 6 today, is not unexpected by God. And indeed, if we believe God is sovereign, it was purposed by God. Would you not say that? We are where we are because God purposed it to be. And so we, we, can, we can either take the wring your hands view of, oh my goodness, here's these four views. Maybe there's more views than that. What are we going to do about it? Or we can say, we've got four views. God knew that when he wrote it. So what's the purpose that God has in, in having written this to us in this way? What are the purposes for us seen in the exhortations and the warnings of chapters 1 through 5? One, he wants us to gain an awareness of God's sufficiency. Man, that's just all together there in chapter 1 and chapter 2. God has spoken finally and fully in his Son. His Son is fully God. He was there at creation. He sustains the universe. The angels bow down and worship to him. Hey, there's nobody more authoritative than the Son. And he has come to earth. He has taken on human flesh. He has now been qualified not only to make atonement for our sins, which he's accomplished, but to serve as our great high priest, which continues on, as you know, in the, in the text. To gain an awareness of his sufficiency, to gain an awareness of our inadequacies. <laughs> we are to look at chapters 3 and 4 and say, not just those goofy Israelites. Could they not get it right? This text is saying to us, we're made of the same flesh they are. We have a tendency to, uh, to, be, to disbelieve God. We have a tendency not to step out in faith in trusting Him. We have a tendency within us to rebel against God. Their experience, in effect, is us. If we were there, we'd have been picking up the rocks to throw at Moses so we could choose a new leader and go back to Egypt for the leeks and the garlics. So we need to see our own, our own inadequacies there. Thirdly, to draw near to our great high priest for help in our time of need. If he is adequate and we are inadequate, it doesn't take a Rhodes Scholar to figure out who ought to be going to whom for help. We ought to go to him, draw near in our time of need. Fourth, to pay more careful attention to his word. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. If indeed the one through whom God has spoken is the Son, and he is everything that the writer has said he is in chapter 1, we'd better pay more careful attention to what he has said. The author is not saying, now what he has said is the book I'm writing. Yes, he has spoken in the book of Hebrews. What he is saying is everything that has been said, and so in a sense, not only do you have all the Old Testament, which the author uses in abundance, but you have the New Testament. In other words, the author is telling us we need to pay more careful attention to the Word of God, all of it, not just four verses that give us trouble, the whole of God's Word. We need to grow up to maturity by transitioning from milk to meat. 
So how do we do that? How do these texts help us achieve a careful attention on God's Word and a transition from a milk diet to a meat diet? I think that these verses have been written in such a way that it pushes us to do that. God's given us a little, we call it head start. Let's just call this operation head start in a divine way to get us off the milk diet and onto the meat diet. How? We're forced to study Hebrews more carefully as a book. Because the author is not using absolutely precise language, we have to go beyond these four verses. We have to look at its immediate context. We have to look at the whole argument of the book and say, to whom is he speaking, unbelievers or believers? What is he trying to achieve, to make them wonder whether they're saved or to to assure them that when they're saved, they can press on? You've got to look at the argument of the book, do you not? And more than that, we're going to come to issues that are bigger than the book of Hebrews uh, and and like the doctrine of eternal security and all those passages just for example in in the gospel of John. We cannot understand and interpret Hebrews rightly without understanding biblical doctrine, and I'm going to jump out and say it, we can't understand it without theology. I think that theology is meat. Now, I'm not saying it's the only thing, but, but I, think, I think that's not a bad definition for biblical doctrine or biblical theology. It's meat. Because you have to work. You can't just go to one text and find the doctrine of the Trinity, can you? And yet that is a critical doctrine. You have to go through all of Scripture and you put all of these things together and you're saying, my goodness, God the Father is God. Whew. Well, God the Son is God. And God the Spirit is God, and we have only one God. Now, what do you do with that? You chew on it, like they did over history, and you end up saying God is one, one, one individual in three persons. That's the doctrine of the Trinity. It's meat that we have to come to. And that doctrine is critical today. It's not incidental. It's critical for us, I think, in our Christian lives. So... What is, uh, and now we're coming to, to uh, theology is meat. Milk is easily digested. You don't have to chew it. It's simple. It, 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 you know, and so it just kind of goes down. The, uh, I've got five kids and, and, and grandkids, and, and I've, you know, it just goes right on through them. How do I say it? It just goes right away. Stick it in one end. It comes out the other and because it's just so easy to process. Now, meat is another thing. You, you've got a, a process of chewing and digesting. It just takes longer to work that stuff. And, and, and so milk is just something that's easy, and I'm going to say it's tasty. Now, I, I use this, the, the, the sermon title because I always change my titles. You know I do. You know, Dairy Queen or Steak and Ale. But Dairy Queen is just frozen milk with a little sugar in it, folks. <laughs> that's all it is. You just sweeten it up. Oh, it's great. But it doesn't sustain you. It doesn't really give you the kind of growth that you have to have. And so you have to move to something that is, is uh, meatier. What many Christians want and what many preachers produce is milk. They're Dairy Queen churches. Now, you need to have, don't, don't misunderstand me, we all have to be Dairy Queen churches. But you better have a steak and ale on house too. And if you notice that Willow Creek, and to their credit, as they looked at their programming, you know, and they evaluated where they were going, they said, we've been doing a great, I know I'm paraphrasing, we're doing a great job with milk. We're a good dairy queen. 
but we're a lousy steak and ale. We have not given people meat. We have not given them theology. We have not given them doctrine. We have not given them the tools to wrestle with the Word of God. And consequently, those people are moving on because there's just nothing here for them. We all, as churches, need to ask ourselves, are we providing the basic nutrients, the milk for new believers, and are we providing as well the meat for Christians to help them mature, grow up, and study as they ought to and be dependent upon God and His Word? Theology defines what we're to be sure of or not. Frankly, folks, sometimes in our theology, we need to say to ourselves, you know what? This, this is, is something that just is not a fundamental of faith. All right, I'm going to say it. Like our eschatology. You know what? Every one of us has some view of how the future is going to work out, but nobody had figured out how the first coming was going to happen, and nobody's going to have the second coming right. And so am I going to break out in a cold sweat because we've got different views of when the Lord is coming and all the details? I am not. And part of what I do when I, when I get into the theology of this and I look and I see, what do I know? There are various views of this. I say to myself, this may be one of those things for which I'm not going to take up the sword and, and, and fight for this as though it were the bastion for the faith. Sure, it's important, but you just have to say, theology says, these are the things I'll go to the wall for. These are the things in which I'm going to accept some tolerance, as we do within our body. That's just the way I think it needs to be. Examples of how a deeper knowledge of God enables one to understand suffering, which is coming up for the recipients of the Hebrews, adversity. Can I just quickly say this? Psalm 119, the psalmist basically says, Until I came to adversity, or should I say, until adversity came to me, I wasn't really too hot on your word, but I'll tell you, it really got me going. That's a paraphrase. But the psalmist is saying, adversity really got me serious about God's word. Well, it ought to. Because God's word, and I'm saying now in a meteor way, in a theological way, it is is sound theology that enables us to deal with the adversity of life. You can, one of the things I notice with the sort of name it and claim it folks is they're just, they're just, they're just dispensers of Dairy Queen. And so it's, you know, if you have enough faith, God will heal you. Uh, if you have enough faith, God will make you rich and prosperous and no trouble will come your way. Well, what happens when trouble does come your way? The milk isn't going to hold you, folks. You better have something else. So that takes us to Psalm 73. What does Asaph say? That's the way I believed it. I believed God was supposed to make me rich and famous. And now I look out over the church and I see all these yahoos who are driving better cars than I am and their life's going easier than I am. What's wrong? You know what was wrong? His theology. And so what he has to do is he has to go to the temple and he has to see things from God's point of view. And he says, well, what do you know? God is with me in my affliction. And God is going to be with me in heaven. He's with me here. He's with me there. The nearness of God is my good. What's the conclusion? Draw near to God. Sounds like Hebrews. Because he's now got his theology right, he can deal with suffering, and rather than fight it, he accepts it as God's hand in his life. Theology allows us to do that. And I don't mean theology apart from Scripture. I mean theology in the sense of understanding Scripture as a whole. Not just little bits and pieces, not little M&Ms of theology, but chunks of it. That's what it's about, if I understand correctly. Job. Here's old Job. 
he's the best God's got to offer. You know, and old Satan, he's saying, oh, yeah, just give him a little adversity. Job gets a little high. Don't you think? He gets a little high and haughty with God. But Job's friends, you know, they come along and they've got this simple milk of milk mentality. And, and they say to him, you know, God's going to bless. If you're good, God's going to bless you. And if, and if God isn't blessing you, there's something wrong. You need to confess. They're wrong, folks. They didn't have the right theology. So God says to him, you know what, Job? You need a little lesson in sovereignty. Take a look at the creation around you. Were you standing around telling me, well, this is the way this ought to work, and you ought to hang that star a little lower and this one over here? And all of a sudden, Job says, you know what? He's God. He knows it all. He has all power. My best shot is I better trust him. I better live by faith. Theology straightens him around to live by faith, where he's been counting too much on what he's been doing or not. Wrong mentality. Deuteronomy chapter 8. God says in a text that's going to be cited uh, in, in chapter 11, he says, I let you have trouble to test the quality of your faith because I wanted to see what you would do with my word. The problem was that rather than grow deeper in their knowledge of God, remember Moses said, show me thy ways. I want to know you better so I don't fall. People said, fooey on God's word. We're going to do it our own way. We're going to go back to Egypt and so on. It's all about understanding God. And the deeper your understanding of Him, then the greater the sense and the grasp you have of dealing with the adversities of life. Am I talking about theological, theoretical knowledge that's upper story and has no relationship to life? I am not. Because we've just read the text that says that what the Scripture does is it gives us wisdom to discern good and evil. And by practice of that truth, we come into a deeper knowledge of God and we come into a deeper knowledge of truth. It's truth that's used, not truth that's stored. That's what this is about. A personal challenge. Our text was given to us as a challenge. It achieved its purpose. He said, you guys have been on milk too long and it's time for meat and he throws a beefsteak at us. Do we think it's supposed to be easy and quick? We want a milk interpretation? He says, no, it's going to be tough. You're going to have to think about it. You're going to have to think about the context of Hebrews. You're going to have to think about the whole argument of Hebrews. In fact, the whole New Testament and Old. You'll need to put that together in a theological framework where you can deal with this. Because I don't think this text can be interpreted by itself. I think it has to be interpreted in the light of the entirety of God's Word, and milk Christians can't do that. Only meat Christians can. So, it's not just a challenge to us who are preachers. It's a challenge to you to get into the book. Be a steak and ale Christian. Commit to learn theology, doctrine. Call it whatever you want. But I'm talking about learning what the Bible is about in the hard stuff. And frankly, that's one of the differences between milk and meat. Not all meat, frankly. One of the meats I don't like, I'll just tell you, is liver. But sometimes you may have to have it anyway. But see, milk, I mean, it's pretty good stuff. You can put a little chocolate in it or freeze it and make ice cream out of it. It goes down the pipe really easy. Some meat is not easy to take. How many people immediately come to the Scriptures and say, well, God is sovereign. He chose me before I chose Him. Nobody. And so what they do is they come to the Scriptures and say, whoa, that is hard. Yep, it's meat. 
But if it's in the text, you've got to embrace it. And you've got to somehow work that through with, He also holds me accountable and responsible. Theology is putting these things together which seem to be not necessarily compatible or at least holding them in suspension. That's what theology does. And so when we come to a text like this, we need to have it. Chew on the text. That's all I'm going to say, folks, except for this. This text has an interesting, in the way in which it is written, it has an interesting effect. It has a way of, I think, encouraging the believer by underscoring their their confidence and their trust in God and saying, wow, I'm secure and I need to draw near. But it also has, in the way it's written, if you were to say to yourself, you know, I've been considering this sin and I know it's wrong, I'm going to do it anyway. And you go home and you drag out your Bible legalistically to read for your daily devotions and you read Hebrews chapter 6, I'll bet you'll shake in your boots. And you know what? Isn't that, That's not bad, is it? For somebody who's actually planning to rebel against God, it ought to make them uncomfortable. And, and, and I'm not talking about the reality of their eternal security, but in terms of their sense of it, <laughs> well, you just, when you're in disobedience to God, you just don't have that same assurance that you did. So in one sense, the, the vagueness, if you want to call it that, the vagueness actually allows the Word of God to speak to us in different circumstances. It doesn't change the meaning, doesn't change the primary interpretation, but it says, you want to choose to rebel against God, I wouldn't have my devotions in Hebrews. And avoids chapter 6 and 10 at, like the plague. So I say to any here this morning, there may be some who have never come to trust in Jesus Christ. They don't know what it's like to have come to rest from their works, to trust in what Jesus has done by by dying on the cross of Calvary. Trust in Him. He's the one who is the source of truth. And when you come to know Him, you'll start with milk, but you should move to meat. And that meat is what will sustain you when life starts going hard. That's what it's about. That's what meat is for. Father, thank you for this text. Help us to to wrestle with it because it's not easy. But it wasn't meant to be. Help us to struggle with it. Help us to be good students. Help us to be careful to look at all of Scripture and to rightly divide your word of truth in Jesus' name. Amen.